Turn on your soundbite recorder now because here's one for free. I love talking, Joe, because they're so precise and they're so real about the things that they are digging into. They care. They want every comic to be perfect because comics are expensive and they're hard to make. And nobody knows that better than Tim Finn. And that's why he offers such detailed critiques and analysis of every single panel of every single book they read. This is a dedication to quality that I, Brandon Jerwa, admire in the Talking Joe podcast. I'm Brandon Jerwa, and Tim Finn did not approve this message. Live from the Talking Joe studios, it's Talking Joe. Talking Joe, we podcast. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe thought we would last. Talking Joe is there. Find each other like a married couple. A podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe is the code name for a completely untrained special podcast force. Its purpose to produce a regular comic review show while breaking and replacing a series of presenters from across the world. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. We are on our soapbox. Nobody seems to care. Fighting for fandom wherever there's trouble. But the podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, hey, hey. Just think, while you've been getting down and out about the liars and the dirty, dirty cheats in the world, you could have been getting down to this sick podcast. It's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. If you are new to the show, you can find out all the details over the website, talkingjoe.co.uk. Today, we are continuing our look at the G.I. Joe disavowed era, the Devil's Due Run. And specifically, we will be talking about two G.I. Joe frontline one and dones, issues 15 and 16 from Devil's Due in 2003. So you've now met the front man. Let me introduce my Squid Game underlings. First up, it's a real American square. It's Tim's. <laughs> it's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark, and hello, listeners. And next up, arm to the teeth, it's the pointiest of all of the triangles. It's GIJ, Jake Audrey. Underlings. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Own it. Own it. Howdy, Joe fans. Hi, Mark. Hi, Tim. Are we ready to talk some Joe today? Of course we are. It's uh, It's been ages in the background, you know. These these things come out weekly, but uh, we've had a couple of weeks off. Um, so uh, I'm I'm geared up, chomping at the bit, ready to go. Me too. And, and there's a lot to talk about with these two issues today. And... Uh, it's not four issues or five issues. It's not a big arc. Yeah, it's two single issues. So let's uh, look at these things. Frontline! 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 They're stalking behind comic scenes, behind, behind the, the comic scenes. scenes. Mark, Mark, J, and Tim 
It's the spin-off that has survived There's no yawning to find the meaning Is it good? Is it shite? G.I. Joe Frontline on Talking Joe Well, G.I. Joe Frontline on Talking Joe G.I. Joe Frontline on Talking Joe Well, G.I. Joe Frontline on Talking Joe So, uh, starting up, we are looking at issue 15 of Frontline. The name of the story is Going Home, focusing in on Stalker. The creative team is uh, Story, Gary Phillips, Pencils, Jeremy Love with Mike Norton and Tim Seeley, Inks, Corey Hampshire with John Larter, Colours, Matt Cousin, Letters, Dream and Design, Graphic Design is Mike Norton, and Cover, Jeremy Love. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. So the cover is Stalker with his stepson, Alvin, by Jeremy Love. What do you think? You go first, Jay. It's a good cover. It's well drawn. Love is a good artist. He's not real um, flashy. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of times throughout this story, you'll see um, characters that are well drawn. But there's not a lot of not a, a whole lot of movement, not a whole lot of uh, camera movement. So that's kind of what we've got here. It's a little far away, but they do that so that you can see that they're kind of in the spotlight. I understand that it's all right. We'll get into the, the specifics about Alvin later. He's not sure how old this kid's supposed to be, but he's very short in this picture, much, much shorter than Stalker. But he is throughout the whole issue. Yeah, the colors are fine. Art's fine. It's like I said, it's not a great cover. I wouldn't. You know, if I if I didn't pick up G.I. Joe every month, you know, if, if I was a casual reader, I don't know such a thing exists. If I saw this one, yeah, would this make me pick it up? I don't know. It, it, it wouldn't do a great job of selling the book for me. So I go back to this rule, which I, I think this comes from Stephen Grant, comics writer. A good cover should ask a question and the interior answers yeah. it. Now, there are certainly exceptions to that. You can have a cover like G.I. Joe 53, which is just a very cool portrait of Snake Eyes. And certainly there are a lot of covers nowadays, uh, G.I. Joe included, a lot of those variant B covers where it's it's just an action shot or a pinup. So this idea of a cover asking a question, um, it's not a hard and fast rule because you can you can compel me with a cover like G.I. Joe 47, right? Devilfish. It's like, okay, I, I don't know who they're shooting at. I don't know who's shooting at them. It's probably Cobra. But that that drawing is exciting enough to get me to want to buy the issue. Right. Anyway, uh, the Mike Zek cover with Wetsuit and, and Hawk and Beachhead. Um, the one with Snake Eyes, though, was kind of a one-shot. That was during one month, I think, when all the Marvel covers had static covers like that. So... Yeah, the 25th anniversary yeah. in, in 86. Okay, so G.I. Joe Frontline 15, the problem here is that it's it's in between these two things. It's half asking a question because Stalker and his kid are looking at something, but they're actually looking in different directions. Stalker has his gun, and both of them seem... Um, kids seem surprised. Stalker seems concerned. They both seem concerned. And there is a light source. Now, I'm not going to be so specific that I need to know, like, are these headlights? Is this a spotlight? Is this just sort of any generic light and there's a shadow for the sake of drama? Um, but I think what's missing here is some indication of who is surrounding them. And 
you know, think of uh, think of the cover to GI Joe 117 by Michael Golden, Destro Destro Search and Destroy Part Two, where uh, Destro, uh, the Baroness, and a couple Joes are coming at us, and there are uh, Night Creepers and um, Night Vipers around them sort of pointing weapons at them. And that cover also involves a brick wall. Now, it's always unfair to compare any artist to Michael Golden, but, you know, if this cover, if if we backed up like five more feet and there was like a fist on the left side holding uh, a knife and a fist holding a pistol on the right side, and those could be colored like dark blue. So it's the indication is that they're sort of a separate layer, you know, so this this cover is missing something. Barring that, um, imagine with all this negative space under the, the two names under the number 15, all this negative space over Stalker's shoulder and the word hero, real American hero, if there was a, a caption, right? And it's like, Stalker goes home to discover his son needs, uh, his son has found a world of trouble, right? Or like on the mean streets of, is it Detroit? On the mean streets of Detroit, uh, Stalker and his son are gonna find they've got a price to pay, you know? And then like, instead of like on the bottom front line, it's like, you know, clutch goes home the hard way. It's like, give me the title or something. So this cover is, is I like the drawing. It's as a concept, it's half-baked. Yeah, it sort of rem- I was sort of put in mind a little bit of the G.I. Joe issue 17 from Devil's Due that we, we looked at from the, the Cabal where I think it's um, Flint and, and the Baroness are surrounded by some sort of you know, Russian mafia goons and they've got the guns pointing to them. And, and it sort of feels like there's a, you know, it's a co- almost a comic sort of shorthand or, or rule that, that you know, if, if your back's against the wall like that, as, you know, as, as you kind of hint at, Tim, that, that there kind of needs to be something encroaching from the side of the panel to kind of indicate what is that 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 menace. And, and similarly, the, there's the, the, the big black shadow bit behind them which sort of seems very important to this image but there's not really an indication necessarily of why there's such a big looming shadow what's causing it you know and again comic shorthand if there's goons looming over you perhaps it would be their shadow you know casting uh, casting down across uh, across the you know the heroes of of the piece yeah not not especially exciting for me at the same time you know there doesn't have to be um adversaries with weapons uh threatening these two characters you could you know change what the kid is holding or doing you could have the two of them looking at each other it could be an argument there there is more than one way there are more than two ways to finish the idea of this cover and give it a different idea there isn't one solution for this cover hey tim what is the um the green lantern was it Green Lantern or Green Arrow with, uh, was it Speedy shooting up on the cover and Green Lantern's walking? It's a Neil Adams cover. Think of yeah, how impactful is, that it, would be, something like that. I mean, obviously, we're not going to have uh, somebody shooting up on a G.I. Joe cover. Uh, it's you're, it's the cover of uh, when, when Green Lantern became a team-up book, yeah. Green Lantern and Green Arrow in the mid-70s. That, 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 uh, that cover is, is a little different in that that's inside and Speedy's sitting at a table. Uh, and I, I think you can tell that Green Arrow and Green Lantern have like come yeah. in through a doorway, yeah. but yes, it's it's another case. And also, also yeah, like you has, said, it pulls back and shows you more of what what the you know surrounding that one has dialogue. But the the cover goes: it's Green Green Lantern. You always have the answers, Green Arrow. Well, what's your answer to that? My ward, Speedy, is a junkie. DC attacks youth's greatest problem: drugs. 
Wow. Yeah. The shocking truth about drugs is the uh, the headline uh, there. What's what's the uh, what's the Mike Zach Devils Do cover around issue eight? It's it's very yellowish where Beachhead is facing off yeah. with the three or four recruits mm-hmm. in a line. You know, like that cover uh, doesn't ask much of a question, but it's a scene which which feels like it has a beginning and a middle and, and maybe and you can fill in the end, right? It's like, oh, one of those recruits just mouthed off at Beachhead or Beachhead is telling these recruits that they're in for a world of hurt. But <laughs> like Stalker isn't talking. Alvin isn't talking. We don't know what they're looking at. Um, so again, I like the drawing and the fact that it's so different for a GI Joe cover, right? Like either this kid is Stalker's kid, or this kid is somehow important to Stalker the way that his kid might be. And uh, the kid's in uh, civilian clothes, and uh, Stalker's in sort of his uniform, sort of in civilian clothes. So there is enough information here that I am intrigued. And in the last, you know, year with my box of all these Devils Do comics, knowing that we'd get to this every so often, I saw this one. And for two reasons, one, because it's like his kid and they're wearing civilian clothes. And two, the art style here is um, more cartoony and less like adventure style. Like this isn't Ron Wagner and Ron Wiggum, right? This looks more like like Mad Magazine and you know, Jay Scott Campbell and like Archie, right? And I say those as, as those all as compliments. Those two things have for a long time been enough to get me interested in reading this issue. So while the cover on its own merits, uh, it's not a great cover uh, because it's different from other G.I. Joe covers, uh, I, I am intrigued. Okay, let's find out what happens in this story uh, with a plot breakdown. Take it away, Jay. G.I. Joe Sergeant Lonzo Wilkinson, codenamed Stalker, is returning home to Page Manor District in Fairborn, near Dayton, Ohio. Stalker has been away a long time and is greeted warmly by his wife, Lydia. Lydia updates the erstwhile soldier on the goings-on in Ohio. Their son, Kamal, has grown another inch and is starting to read. Unfortunately, Alvin, Stalker's stepson, is not doing as well. Alvin is having problems in school and is taken to running the streets. Lydia fears their son is involved in drugs or gangs. Stalker takes to the streets and locates Alvin, who, sure enough, is smacked down in the middle of a turf war involving rival gangs G Hustlers, led by Mad Anthony Brown, and the Six Rivers gang, led by no one in particular. As he watches the two gangs, Stalker flashes back to the days of his youth and his own involvement with drugs and gangs. He remembers the pivotal moment when he turned his back on dealing cocaine with the Mafia. A fight breaks out between the gangs and Stalker rushes in to pull Alvin from the melee. Before they get away, however, Stalker sees Mad Anthony wailing on a rival gang member with a pipe and stops him. Mad Anthony's lieutenant puts a gun in Stalker's face, which he nonchalantly takes from the would-be killer, impressing the gangsters. Stalker drives Alvin home, never once questioning what happened to the whites of the boy's eyes. The next day, Stalker visits the boy's principal and sets about gathering intel on his latest target, Mad Anthony Brown. The following night, Stalker tracks the Six Rivers gang, to a rail yard and plants explosives to blow up a shipment of drugs. Mad Anthony sees Stalker and is about to shoot him in the back when he is tackled by Alvin. Stalker fires a gun in the air, scattering the other gang members. Alvin beats up Mad Anthony, then tells Stalker to stop planting explosives because he's already called the police who will be there any minute to clean up the mess. The end. Thank you, Jay. So uh, where to start? Um, let's, let's start with story, shall we? 
So uh, what do you guys think of the actual story itself and, and how that you know, how effective that is? I appreciate it is a single issue because uh, some of the best G.I. Joe comics are one issue stories. But telling a story in just 22 pages is a is a challenge and, and uh, not every writer uh, is up to it. I, I'm not all that interested in Stalker going home. I'm more interested in Stalker being a Joe. But, you know, if this story is pulled off well, I'm all on board. And can you guys remind me, back in issue one or issue two of the main Devil's Due series, mm. when everyone's getting called back in, uh, we see for a panel or two Stalker at home with Lydia, right? He, we, we know that he's left behind his family in the seven-year uh, gap. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that we sort of we've established that. Yeah, Stalker has got sort of a family unit in the intervening years. Um, so, uh, story I think is uh, uh, pretty pretty good. I think the ending is uh, rushed, but I uh, I like I like all the scenarios. Uh, I found the flashback confusing. I appreciate that there's this parallel between a character we know. And also remind me, uh, doesn't Stalker's original toy dossier from 82 indicate that he he had had trouble and then he joined the military? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it talks about him having, yeah, having like a background in as a sort of gang leader in Detroit. Uh, yeah, I think it described him as a gang warlord, maybe. So, okay, so, uh, so you know, looking back to that, that's, that's great. The thing that, the thing that didn't, quite work for me is i feel like three different times someone said alvin is on the is on the edge alvin is on the ledge alvin is at that point in his <laughs> life when uh when he could go either way uh, between uh lydia stalker the principal and then maybe one of them says it a second time and for such a short story only 22 pages right like you don't need to repeat anything so you can you can like cut into the scene a little bit later so that, for example, the principal isn't saying in different words what Lydia said a couple pages earlier. It's like, I haven't forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and my last thought on the story is, uh, you know, always interesting when there's a Joe story without Cobra and that, that works fine here. So, Jay, what do you think of the story? I was not a huge fan of it. I know that, and, and I'll, I'll explain why. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd stopped. I know that, yeah, I know that Stalker's original file card, um, you know, said that he was uh, involved in a gang. Yeah. The precise words were Stalker was warlord yeah. of a large urban street gang prior to enlistment. Yeah. So there's a couple of different things. You know, I know that that's there, but I I kind of don't like this, the story in that I feel like a lot of times in popular entertainment, it's real... I feel lazy and insulting when you have a, a black character and they say, oh, well, it has to involve drugs or gangs. And they shoe that, they shoehorn that in a lot of times uh, when it's just really doesn't have any any place or need to be in the story. Good examples, 24, Live Another Day. Uh, main character was a CTU officer, which is like CIA. Uh, so, of course, he has a, a brother who's still in the hood and involved with the gangs. And, you know, you just think... Um, you know, not every black person uh, has family members that are involved in that kind of thing. I don't know. It just, it rubs me the wrong way when I see that because I have black friends that are um, very successful and, and they don't have any part of any of that. And I 
feel like it's kind of uh, stereotyping in a bad way. Mm. I d- I'm not familiar with Gary Phillips as as a writer. I don't know whether whether this is kind of a you know an area a background that he's he's familiar with. If it is, I, I don't think he's necessarily using his background to to the best of his abilities. Because for me, it it does feel like a bit of a flat story. It just feels a little bit cliche, you know, um, young black kid, you know, coming into trouble with drugs and the right. Like there could be something else. Yeah, the motivation for why he's in trouble because you know he's doing well at school. He's got parents that look up, you know, love him, look after him, and yada yada, and, and all the rest of it. So the motivation for why he's getting into into that trouble. And then the turnaround as to how he gets out of trouble and decides that he does want to be, I don't know, uh, you know, does want not want to be in that situation and 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 decided that that stalker is a, a good guy after all. Quite why that is, I don't fully un- understand. So you know, it just seems a bit cliche, a bit lazy, and just the sort of the the overall what happens in the story. There's there's just it seems to be a lot of not a lot happening of of a lot of talking heads a lot of very big dialogue word balloons not a huge amount to necessarily get me excited or really properly invested in it yeah in, into the story and the characters so as a as as food not a counter as food for thought both the writer and the artist of this story are black and if a black writer is trading in the sort of trope of like black characters involved in crime or drugs or being in gangs is there more leeway for that than if a white writer is doing it uh or is is the black writer sort of like mired in the same stereotypes and archetypes that sort of all of the writers and all of the readers in america right now uh are also you know is this like a one sentence that someone at devil's do handed to gary phillips and said oh you want to tell a story about stalker going home and do something with his his past it's like well here's the one sentence for the two sentences we know about his past or you know is this a concept that was pitched by phillips i do note on uh, gary phillips's website He's written some things that I'm not familiar with, but he's also written some things for uh, DC, for Vertigo, for Hardcase, which is the crime imprint of Titan, for Boom. And I think I read his graphic novel Cowboys a decade ago because uh, Brian Hurt, an artist who I really like, drew one or two of those uh, Vertigo crime original graphic novels. They were published as very small black and white paperbacks. Uh, And I'm pretty sure I read this. So while I'm not familiar with Gary Phillips' work, I think I've read something by him before. Huh. But notably, notably, his website doesn't mention this one G.I. Joe issue. And <laughs> I don't know if that's because uh, it's possible that I haven't searched his website um, enough, uh, although it doesn't seem all that dense. Uh, it might be because, you know, it's early work and he's a more developed writer now. And he like, you know, not everyone talks about their earliest work. Yeah. It might and be it's just, that it's yeah, just one issue as well, right? Um, although he does, he does somewhere on his website sort of point out like how many specific comics he's written, but, um, it may be that because it's a, it's like a licensed thing, it's not quite the thing that he wants to uh, promote. Although there is a little bit of licensed work elsewhere on his website. I wonder, uh, if the fact that, um, there are three credited pencilers and three credited inkers, excuse me, two credited inkers, I can't quite tell where 
Jeremy Love stops drawing, or maybe he draws the whole thing, but he's sort of leaning on some layouts by Mike Norton mm. and Team Seeley. Um, usually in that kind of case, it's like, oh, someone um, ran out of time or the editor gave them like not enough time. And so other people like did the final pages. Other people helped finish the book. And I can't, I can't quite see it. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't even look like the final issues, uh, excuse me, the final pages are, are someone else. It all does look uh, consistent. But I also wonder if, you know, like we've, we've heard that sometimes things were uh, going really well for Devil's Do. And sometimes things were rocky. I wonder if uh, the fact that this isn't on Gary Phillips's website and there are five credited artists, if there was some kind of artistic compromise in the making mm. of this comic, such that the person who wrote it, uh, who wrote it, uh, at the same time, you know, I haven't updated my website in uh, <laughs> ten months. So you know, maybe Gary Phillips is like, oh, that's, there's like four comics I wrote at the beginning of my career that I sure need to. Um, no, it's interesting you you say that though, Tim. That normally, when when you do have you know cre- number of credited pencilers, it is pretty obvious who has done what. You know that one one page is by one penciler and another is by by another, and there's a big enough difference in style, particularly if you're aware of there being multiple artists, that you can pretty much figure out which pages have not been done by the main artist. Whereas it's less obvious here. So maybe it's finishes, maybe it's breakdowns. You know something along those those lines rather than it just be yeah it just being one person does one page and one person does the does the other yeah i think yeah i, I think probably a, a black writer does have more license to tell this sort of story without it feeling problematic you know but uh yeah it that doesn't necessarily make it a better story jay i wondered um as uh as a an ohio native whether uh you're familiar with the the area in this particular issue. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm real familiar with Dayton. I got a lot of friends over there. Um, I'm not necessarily familiar with the page Manor district, uh, but there's a lot of little suburbs around Dayton. So yeah, I'm probably more familiar than most of our listeners. Definitely. And I, I've been to Dayton twice because there were two transformer, two yeah. botcons have been, or one, <laughs> 1995. There's not necessarily lots of background details suggesting a sense of no. place, to be honest. It's nice, though. Always nice to see Ohio name dropped, especially a place I know. Uh, Mark, that's a good transition, because I, 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 I'm guessing what you would next say is, now that we've talked about the story, let's talk about the art. And I mm-hmm. want to talk about the art. Um, <laughs> uh, Jeremy Love is, uh, is better known for, uh, he's done a little bit of work for uh, DC and Dark Horse, uh, he's done a little bit of licensed work. He, he did a little bit of Fraggle Rock. And uh, he has a uh, graphic novel called uh, Bayou, which like looks like fun and, and entertaining. So, uh, but this does feel like, you know, early in his career. So what I like about his art here is that uh, he is cartooning. And this, this style doesn't look like any other issue of Frontline or every, any other issue of of G.I. Joe, regular G.I. Joe. And it feels like, particularly in the faces, like they're sort of caricatured, they're cartoony, like maybe he his background is more, you know, animation than than comics. And and the storytelling is basically clear, right? The transition to the first flashback I didn't I didn't actually get, although I what he what he's doing in that, this is on page uh four. One, two, three, four, five. Um he does something nice you know, when he transitions to the flashback in that 
as we see Stalker now for a final time before we transition to Stalker in the flashback, they are drawn at the same angle. And then as we transition out of the flashback on the next page, the sort of bad guy who like was the breaking point for Stalker in the flashback has a pose and the pose is it's mm-hmm. the same pose in the present day with like the current bad guy. So there's that's a nice choice, right? I don't know if that's in the script or that's an art decision. Um, but the thing that Jeremy Love doesn't do in this comic is tip the camera up or down. Every except for two example, uh, two exceptions. Every panel is a straight on shot, and they're almost all. Uh, close-ups or medium shots, right? A close-up is head and shoulders, a medium shot is waist up. And, you know, this this is using film language, but a, a long shot is, is full body. And like, yes, there are some full body shots, but the storytelling ends up being sort of claustrophobic because love mm. doesn't leave a lot of room for backgrounds and almost never in the story draws a panel where the background is primary and the placement of characters and their movement within that space um, is secondary. And what this says to me is that at this stage in his career, he is not comfortable drawing backgrounds. And my, it's not proof, but my circumstantial evidence for this is anytime there's something that would be exciting or illustrative to set the scene, in drawing it straight on and kind of close and avoiding drawing it, he misses an opportunity to let us know how the space feels. So when we're in the principal's office at the school, it's like, what do I see of the principal's office? Like almost nothing. I see like some desks, some window, some curtains, like nothing else. I don't know if it's a big spacious principal's office, a small cramped one. I don't know if there's a lot of clutter. And then uh, two pages later, right? Stalker's in a, uh, not a Starbucks, but something just like a Starbucks and some people are walking by outside. And starstruck. Yes. And you draw this angle this close to a cafe because you don't want to draw the building. You don't want to draw the other seats inside with other customers. You don't want to draw people walking by with cars and like a newspaper vending machine and the trash can and a fire hydrant. Like you draw this because you don't want to draw other things. And it happens again and again when when we cut to um, Stalker and his wife shopping like downtown. It's like the least amount of building you could draw behind them. And this storytelling tells me that Love, in laying out his pages, figured out where the characters were first, and then like where there was space crammed in some background around them and behind them. And that's not a, the best way to lay out a page because like figuring ground, how backgrounds work, like how characters are moving throughout space, like that's really important, particularly in a story where, like, I don't know, some random guy right behind Stalker's yeah. wife is going to threaten them. Just or, happens to be there, you know. Peop- or people have like guns and they're like repelling uh, down buildings, and that happens again in the train yard, where it's like, how much of the trains do we see? Like very little. So these scenes have. It's not just like the illustration, the depiction, the clarity of space. These. Uh, and 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 in his, and in his kitchen when uh, when uh, his son talks back and he like lectures his son right um, but these locations have no atmosphere they have no feeling so part of why this story like bounces off me and I'm like sh- I shrug my shoulders like okay this is this is okay is because the different ingredients of this you know, like you know good drawing like okay story like good character like some stuff I've seen before. 
but the actual like presence, the tone, the feeling, you know, it's like, let's pretend for a second as a thought exercise that um, this was like a haunted house story. It's like, I'm sorry, I don't think this artist at this stage in his career could pull that off. Or let's say it's like, uh, like an Arctic mission, like Icebound, right? Where like Joes are in a base and like something is uh, hot, stalking them. Um, <laughs> I don't, I think it would be clear, but I think in a lot of cases it's like, well, there's some monster sort of behind them, like sort of in a doorway. I don't know if it came out of that doorway or I don't know if it just happened to be standing in front of that doorway. So I like how he draws faces and bodies, poses and like, Clo uh, folds and clothing. I really like the coloring here, and oh boy, Whoa. do I wish the regular, I wish the regular monthly uh, comic had flat coloring like this. But um, uh, storytelling and page layout are lacking. I think going back to the recipe of this issue, I figure w that that it's it came about just like um, I'm not sure which one of you. I think I think Tim said it that uh, probably Devils Do approached uh, Phillips and said, hey, we, we've got an idea for a story. We want to do Stalker going home. You know, can rewrite it. So, yeah. And maybe that also explains why he doesn't have it on his website, because it was just something that, you know, it really was just a work for hire thing. Yeah, the artist is good. Oh, love is good with faces and stuff. And I think when we go back to Seely's uh, involvement, uh, I think that probably what we're looking at is consider how um, boring the pages are. Probably Seely did thumbnails. And uh, and then Love did the the pencil work and Norton came in with his design and added all the guns and technical stuff that is there because there are a few nice shots of, of firearms and things like that. But yeah, there's there's no visible Sealy. I think it's under the surface and it's that uh, flat, you know, just kind of mid shot, not, you know, not giving you any kind of background or environment that, that Tim's talking about. I want to point out two other little things. In the train yard, there, there's a panel where um, there's a hand. It's at the top of a page. It's like the I don't know, fourth to last page. Uh, there's a hand and there's a grenade over it. And I think the hand is throwing the grenade. I think Stalker is the person who threw the grenade. But I can't actually tell because in the previous panel, he's not holding a grenade. And I mean, like the story suggests that it's him because he then has a gas mask. I guess it's a gas grenade and the bad guys are all coughing. But... You know, the, the hand that we see throwing the grenade, like, like that doesn't connect to uh, his body. And then at the bottom of this page... It's also, the grenade is in the top left-hand corner in the gutter of the page and it gets a bit lost. I, I think as a comics rule, you wouldn't, you wouldn't put something important or significant in the top left-hand corner. Yeah, from the uh, th that's a good point. the The grenade needs to be nudged to the right because it's it's being thrown from left to right based on the angle of the hand. But it also sort of looks with those um, uh, speed lines, like the grenade is like zipping past his fingertips from right to left. And then on the bottom of the page, uh, two of the bad guys uh, are like knocked out, and we see their um, uh, faces. Right, and here this is this weird like compromise in perspective where. Uh, like technically the camera should be like looking up at Stalker because the camera here is like three inches off the ground because of the, these two bad guy heads, right? Like lying on the ground. And yet the perspective of the train, it's all straight lines up and down. So this, the background is drawn in one point perspective, but this background, we would actually be seeing those train cars in three point perspective. Anyway, in the middle of the panel is a black silhouette. And I think it's Stalker but I don't know what he's doing. And 
the next I turn the page and there's an explosion, right? And I couldn't tell. It's like, oh, is that the is that a bomb that Stalker just planted? Did one of the other bad guys off panel like throw a grenade or fire a rocket at Stalker? Did something inside the train blow up? So yeah, I had no uh, idea what was going on there either. Yeah. Error detected. Error detected. No prize incoming. I spotted a I spotted a, an error on the page before he's throwing the the grenade, which is that uh, one of the gutters is painted as a dark uh, dark purple rather than white. It's the panel above where um, Stalker is grabbing a, a, a goon from behind, um, and then there's a train above his head, and it's so so it's been coloured to make it look like it's one scene, whereas I think the the the, the panel immediately above is meant to be like an establishing shot of a train yard with then uh, him underneath. Um, yeah, yeah. Similarly, uh, just above the moon, there's you, sort of lined up with the top of the moon in mm-hmm. that second panel, you can see a horizontal line as if there was supposed to be a white gutter underneath the panel of the kitchen that would separate the first panel from the second panel, but then it would also clip the top of the moon, which compositionally is like, a yes. Small yeah. Panel. Yeah. Quite subtle. Yeah. It's Odd. been colored over, over the top of, uh, you're talking about, um, stalkers being stalked but um but i do i do i do wonder whether some of the characterization in this story does does point to how stalker got his name after you know after he's uh standing in the dark wearing his night vision goggles uh looming over mad anthony in his bedroom you know (laughs) named stalker for a reason hey stalker proves in this one that he's you don't want to mess with this dude he's blowing up trains and this is on his weekend off. <laughs> on his know? weekend off. Stalking drug dealers. He's kicking um, ass. So I, 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 I've been hard on uh, artist Jeremy Love with this story for the storytelling that's a little unclear or uh, sort of stale. But that that he draws expressive faces and that his characters are distinct from each other, but also consistent. Like, you know, the guy on the cover with the with the furrowed brow Every single time I see those eyes, that nose, those cheekbones, that mouth, that chin, like that is Lonzo Wilkinson, every single panel, every mm-hmm. angle, every expression. And that's not a small thing because, uh, you know, like there are lots of G.I. Joe comics and comics where like everyone is, every male with a full head of hair is just like the same head. And that's a certain kind of shorthand which is fine you know some guy has a goatee some guy has blonde hair and you know that they're all different but it is exciting when you get a certain kind of artist or a certain level of artist in comics where everyone does have distinct facial features Mm. and you can tell them apart even if they're out of costume or with sort of less costume i I see quite a lot of um mike norton in the way that that stalker's drawn so yeah, I don't I don't know whether whether he had anything to to, to do with that aspect or, or or not, but could be. I was going to say as well the 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 style of the the overall book and all of the faces and stuff put me in mind a little bit of Rob Gilroy from Chew uh, for for Image Comics. Uh, that sort of slightly probably not quite as far up the extreme on the on the sort of the cartooning and 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 taking away from from the more you know representative look, but you know. So somewhere there on the on that that cartooning spectrum, uh, we haven't touched on yet. Um, Alvin's eyes, oh, which I was is, just is one say of that. the 
most yeah that one of the the things that pops out the most as a as an artistic uh choice here that he's he's got sort of like black button eyes um a bit like Caroline. um sort of similar similar sort of to 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 the way that kind of you you get those just black eyes um in a lot of like the captain marvel um faucets um kind of comic look to it but um yeah yeah, sort of interesting choice to just him have him as the sole character with that particular kind of artistic interpretation and you know it makes it very distinct uh for for alvin as a as a character the I like it, uh, Mark. To throw one more artist, uh, so you just mentioned what this looks a little bit like to you. Jeremy Love's art here to me looks a little bit like Cully Hamner. Ooh, Cully Hamner nice. is someone he's done a lot of work for DC Comics in the last twenty years. Uh, he his his style is um, both realistic and adventure style, but also he cartoons. What all these faces make me think of him. I think those dots for eyes on Alvin are great. I can imagine a lot of Joe fans who want a more, you know, Ron Wagner standard American adventure style. Like this, this either doesn't work for G.I. Joe or it's distracting because it is just the one character. But it seems like the rules of this story are that it would be for the just just kids that like he's a minor, whereas everyone else in this story is uh, you know, 18 and up. Um, Jay, you, th- you okay with the dots for eyes? I don't like it. I'm, I'm the one that you talked about that likes everybody to you know, have that Ron Wagner mold. The, the bigger issue that I have with Alvin really is just, he looks like he's like 10 or 12, nine. I, I really can't tell how old he's supposed to be. I mean, it seems like he, I would think would be a little bit older in this story. You know, you mentioned uh, reinstated. And I think that in that, we saw Stalker with a couple boys. There wasn't really any um, mention that one of him was a stepson. And I was thinking about this. I think that maybe what they did was they they kind of did a slight retcon. I mean, they're retconning something that wasn't said necessarily and making the older boy his stepson. Uh, because all this just takes place seven years after uh, 155. So it's like, well, he's not going to have a seven-year-old that's involved in this stuff. We wouldn't think so. I don't know. I think that that's why they did that. Uh, you know, why they made him the stepson, you know, so that they could say, well, he's a little older. You know, Lydia had him before she got with Lonzo. You know, it does give that tension. I don't know. I wanted, uh, in terms of um, how old Alvin is or how old he's drawn, uh, you know, I, 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 I want every artist to get everything right all the time. Uh, at the same time, you know, there is this range, like, you see a 10 year old and they've like, they're wearing certain clothes or they've got a little bit of makeup and they just look really much older. Or you see an older kid and you're like, how old are you? And they're like, Oh, I'm 13. Like, Oh, I I thought you were 16 or 17. So, you know, when like kids, how fast kids physically mature, what they're wearing, what the lighting is, if they're wearing makeup, um, there is a big range here, but yes, I take your point that it's a little hard to tell. I want to go back to the second flashback when, um, or maybe it's the third, when um, uh, Lonzo and his uh, his gang friend are meeting these two mafia guys. On a hillside. And his, uh, and his friend says, um, uh, my new friends and me are going to convince you that you need, you need to retire Lonzo for good. And so we see two guys like pr- approach and they're now close and they've got 
uh, like hats because they're like they're in the mafia. And then in the next panel, this is at the bottom of the page. Lonzo's already punching one of them, and the other one has his hand on Lonzo's shoulder. And Lonzo says, "Now that we got that distraction out of the way, you and me need to have words." Dig. It's like again, here's this here's this place where the where the drawing and the script do not match up. Where I think this is what Lonzo would say after he's punched both of the bad guys not one of them and the other one is about to grab him because i sort of thought in the next panel like the other bad guy twirls him around and punches lonzo or lonzo gets twirled around and punches that guy and then lonzo can say now that we got that distraction out of the way you and me my friend who just betrayed me you're gonna have words uh dig you know after you draw a page uh if it doesn't like work someone an editor <laughs> should say oh this doesn't work we need to like take this panel and like shrink it to you know 70% the size and like crop it a little bit and like move this word balloon and like draw a new panel where like we we visualize the story beat that like demands to be shown yeah. here for clarity i do love these guys faces though i'm back on page 14 the, just the the first on the second second panel his stalker's friend his face is great and then the mobsters on second page that that first guy just cracks me up how <laughs> i don't know just the the look of, he of looks his like face ernest just kills borgnine me. yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> um also so you know like so okay i, I was thinking about that and i you know and I'll, i have things to say about issue uh, 16 as well and and it occurred to me that um if if our listeners sometimes uh are uh bummed out that i seem to salivate at the like pointing out an analysis of mistakes in comics right like a storytelling that's not clear or like oh this guy's hand is colored the wrong color so i can't tell who's coming into the scene it's not that it's not that i'm reveling in the mistakes or trying to um, embarrass the the people who made these choices it's that i think of this sort of ongoing discussion of like clarity in storytelling or like maximizing the use of your tools in comics. I think of this as, as like sort of a mission because I think a lot of people who read comics don't always know why they don't love a comic. And if it's the storytelling and they've never quite thought about storytelling and I don't know, in an episode of Talking Joe, someone hears me say like, oh, the camera really needed to be further back so we could see so-and-so coming into the room because it's not clear if they were already there or not. Um, you know, I'm sort of hoping with all of these uh, like critiques that sort of the next person to draw a G.I. Joe comic or write a G.I. Joe comic or edit a G.I. Joe comic and catch a mistake um, will be a little more uh, uh, wary or uh, uh, aware of, you know, like maximizing clarity and and if and seeing something as a mistake, as a mistake, or just any writer or artist that happens to be listening, you know, could learn things. I mean, you're a teacher; that's what you do. And I learn stuff from you all the time, especially as we're going through and you're talking about stuff like background. And you hit it right on the head when you said sometimes a reader might not think, "Well, why didn't I like that as much." happens to me all the time you'll say something you'll be like well if we'd seen more of an establishing shot i go oh yeah that's yeah that's what it needed he's right so totally. and i do i do want to say in terms of uh jeremy love only drawing except for two examples drawing every panel straight on um there are artists in comics who do that right um 
Mike Mignola does not draw cameras aiming down or up because he doesn't want to. And in Hellboy, that works because A, the story that Mignola is constructing as he draws doesn't necessarily need it, right? It's like, uh, you know, if someone, if like a monster is coming out from behind Hellboy, like a straight on view is going to sell that idea. Like Mignola is, is a good storyteller. Also, he's a master of design and like placing shapes, placing shadows and like poses and acting, even if, you know, all of his characters sort of look like sculptures and there isn't a lot of like cartoony face acting. Similarly, you know, like I, I often compare G.I. Joe to Punisher on this podcast because there are some similarities, right? And like the definitive artist for the Punisher of an entire decade, Steve Dillon, tends to only draw straight on shots, kind of in that Mike Mignola mode. Steve, Steve Dillon does not draw like the very first Punisher page that he drew. Um, back in the first miniseries, right <laughs> when uh, when when Knights was launching and, and he was teaming up with Garth Ennis, right? Punisher's holding is I think it's the first yep. page, right? Punisher's holding that guy like he's going to throw them off the top of a building. Like another artist would have the camera like further back and tipped up or further back and tipped down. We'd see some of the like three point perspective of like Manhattan streets below them, and like Dylan's not going to have it. Like he's going to draw. Uh, similarly, you know, there's a much later Punisher story. His some of his, his later um, there's a scene where um, uh, it's in his run with Jason Aaron, where uh, Punisher like throws a guy in the in the back of a uh, a trunk trunk of a car, and uh, like, gosh darn it, no matter what, like whether we're like the guy in the trunk or Punisher looking back at the trunk or Punisher pushing the guy in the trunk, like the camera is. Imagine a camera is on a tripod. It is aiming straight. It's not tilting up or tilting down. And there are plenty of places where I think Dylan could have had a little more dynamic flair in his like action, you know, punching, explosions, jumping. Um, but it's it's never at the sake of clarity. Uh, it's never at the expense of clarity. So I don't want it to seem like um, Love's approach here to this issue is like doomed. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, Dylan's one hell of a of mm -hmm. a storyteller and and creating clarity in his stories. And I and I and we you know we can touch on this as as we get get along. But I think there's there's a certain amount of overlap in DNA in in the in the terms of uh, how Tim Seeley kind of approaches uh, his his art. But let's let's not get on f into that for for now. Um, let's uh, wrap up this issue. Um, Anything to call out? Um, I spies, errors, favorite quotes. Shoot. I have a, a non-I spy. The the principal uh, at the school looks like Doc. Because <laughs> the first panel, uh, he's got uh, not green, but sort of mustard yellow uh, glasses. Because we, we don't see uh, his pupils and retinas. We just see the reflection. And I thought for a second, is that Doc? I have two, but I'll I'll say one and then I'll let you go, Mark, in case you have. I've I've got nothing. I've got nothing. Oh, okay. So let me find it here. Uh, page thirteen, the bottom panel. Stalker sitting in the starstruck. Is that the return of the butter <laughs> sculpture <laughs> that we're seeing there? I said I had nothing. I did have that. <laughs> uh, I I did 
I did see this uh, steam coming off of coffee as uh, more like thick smoke. That's like an escaping a, a marshmallow cream right there. That's not. Uh, that's not. A, uh, that's not a gas. That's a solid. Yeah, and and that's that's a that's a small thing. That's that's not uh, partly the color, the light gray on the white, but it's also the actual like the sort of curves inside it that aren't the outer edges of it. Like that's a very small thing. Ink that just a little differently and it would have been fine. I guess that was my mistake. I don't have two eye spice for that one. I have uh, two favorite lines of dialogue for number 16. My bad. So we're good. We're good. Okay, we're done. Should we should we give this a Yojo score? Yeah. Um, Tim, why don't you go first? Uh, five. Four. 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 <laughs> I'm just imagining. Uh, I'm just imagining Jay set, setting up the graphics uh, for, for this five. one. <laughs> it's sorry, like... I'll do. Sorry, I'll do five. Uh, it's it's not. I'll, I'm it's gonna not do great, that. But it's not it's a like five, five, four, four five. five. <laughs> the what? stakes are low. The stakes are low because it's a single issue. It's the side series. The side series is wrapping up soon. Uh, five. Four. 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 I don't know. Your turn. <laughs> <laughs> it's up to me. <laughs> um, uh, I'm real tempted to say four, just, you know, because I, I told you I didn't like it, really. Um, but, you know, there is, like in every G.I. Joe issue, we find that there's a lot of stuff to like. I, I really like Love's faces, you know, which border on caricature. But uh, he's got a good touch. I love Stalker. Stalker is one of my favorites. I mean, we never have enough stalker. So, yeah, I, that's going to bump it to a five just because it's a stalker story. And I do think love's got got something. A whole lot of love. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go three and a half. Um, did nothing for me. Left me yeah. cold. And um, yeah, if I if I was reading back through my my collection of, of all of these issues, I'd probably skip past these ones. This this one, I don't think. Um, I don't think I'd, I'd, I'd bother to, to to revisit. Not yeah, not enough enjoyment there for me. That might be. I think that's your lowest number that I've heard. Mm, as, I think it probably is. Yeah. Wow. All right, issue sixteen. Warning, team. As the sands of time descend, temporal disruption has set in, and it is here that we must leave our brave adventurers, Mark, Jay, and Tim. Remain patient as we will pick up where we leave them in part two of our Frontline episode as we dig into the detail of the next issue, 16. Join us, if you dare. 